Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Okay, so here's the first question for tonight. And obviously, you don't have to answer this out loud, but do we sometimes hurt others with our foolish decisions and words? Can just a little bit of foolishness destroy or ruin a good thing? Yes. Yes. You've heard the old adage, it just takes one bad apple to spoil the whole bushel, the whole group. Okay, no, no. So this is probably the most difficult portion of Ecclesiastes because if you look at chapters 9 through verse 13 through all of chapter 10, it's all Proverbs. And at first glance, it seems like they're all disjointed, but we're going to figure out how these all go together. Uh, There is a structure to this section. So here's the point of this passage of Scripture from chapters 9, verse 13, through the end of chapter 10, it's this. Since a small amount of foolishness can ruin the influence of wisdom, be sure, I don't know why that's dark, it's weird, be sure to use God-given wisdom in key areas of life. Okay? Now, that may not make sense as we start talking about this, but come on in. But a small amount of foolishness can ruin the power or the influence of wisdom. Be sure to use God-given wisdom, especially in key areas of life. So we're going to talk about three key areas of life. One is something that is near and dear to everyone's heart, especially right after what just happened. The first area is in your political life. Yay! The second is just everyday decisions, and the third is in your speech, your conversation. So let's talk about part one here. Use wisdom in your political dealings. So let's start in chapter 9, verse 13, and go through chapter 10, verse 6, and let's see what Solomon is teaching us about this particular topic. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. That's fine. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to be to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he's a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, 
Do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There's an evil that I've seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking around the ground like slaves. What in the world is he talking about here? What he does is he begins on a macro level, talking about nations, countries, and then moves down to a micro level of how you personally use wisdom in some of these situations. So let's just look at verses 13 uh, through 16. He gives this example of this little city. There was a little city with little people in it. I don't know if it's like little people, but it was a little city. Lilliputians. It was a little city with a small amount of people in it. And there was this great king with this great army that comes against it. So think about the odds. You've got a little city, not very many people, a big, a big king coming against it. The odds are insurmountable. What happens? There's a poor, wise man who delivers the city. Now, we're not told how this poor, wise man helped deliver the city. We don't know what strategy he used. All that's focused upon is the size. Yes, Bob. I don't know if it's the same city, but there's one city that they talked about where a poor wise man delivered the city. And basically he found out what the mighty army wanted, and they wanted one person to be given up because of his sins against that mighty army. And the wise man gave him up. Okay. I'm not sure if it's the same one. Uh, we, we really don't know, historically. Um, but that talks, I came across that in the Bible. Oh, okay. Yeah, this, this, may just, this may be like a parable, or it may be just a made-up story, or it could be real. The point is, we're really not told how the wise man delivered the city. All we're told, really, is the, is the odds. What are the odds? You've got a little city against large odds. And um, what is what overpowers the largeness of the king? It says, verse 16, wisdom is better than might. But what's the issue? What happens to this man? This wise man that saves the city. What does it say about him? He gets forgotten. Nobody, Nobody remembers him. Nobody really cares. It says there in verse 16, the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words aren't heard. Now, that seems counterintuitive, right? You'd think if there was a wise man that saves the city from this major ruler, he would be elevated as a, a great hero. But he's not. But the point that Solomon's making is wisdom is better than might. What does the world value? Might. Might makes right. But there's a proverb in verse 16. What's the proverb in verse 16? Wisdom is better than might. Wisdom wins out every time. It's not might makes right, but wisdom. Think about worldly wisdom for a moment. When you think about the way the world looks at wisdom, what? let's just list some things off here. What does the world, what does the world value? 
as far as, like, what are some things the world places a high premium on? Money. Right, money? Beauty. Beauty. What? Like oil. Oh, oil. Okay. I'm not, you guys are getting real specific here. <laughs> Goods and services. Uh, all right. What are some things that, like, if you were to go up and, like, all right, so money, all right, so think about some P words here. Power. Okay, good. Power, prestige, popularity. What's another P word? Pride. Pride. Power, prestige, popularity, pride, privilege. Ooh, we're getting good here, aren't we? We're, we're alliterating. If I can spell privilege, I don't think privilege. Um, Power, prestige, popularity, pride, privilege. What are some other P words? Prestige. Did I put prestige? Okay. So, the, and um, bigness. You got to have things big. Got to have things new. Got to have things powerful. We, we've got to have the latest, the greatest, the biggest, the best. And recognition. That, and recognition fame. What I hear, I hear some other things today. Okay, so we need it now. Judy, what were you going to say? Okay. All right, so this is what the world values. Okay. God comes along and says, okay, everything that the world values, power, prestige, popularity, bigness, I'm going to turn that all on its head and do things differently. My wisdom is different than the way the world views wisdom. And we see this illustrated in 1 Corinthians, especially when Paul's talking to the Corinthian church about how God saved them. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 31, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What does God Value. How is God's wisdom different? God takes things that are weak. Okay, this, this is Christmas season. What does not make sense about Christmas? If you were God and you were choosing the way the Savior of the world, the King was going to come into the world, how would you do it? Would you choose a backwoods young girl to be giving birth not having relationships with the husband under sketchy circumstances, in a manger, with trough, animals eating out. I mean, is that my phone? Who's calling me? It's my son. I can't ask. I can't answer your question. How I ate it. I'm in the middle of teaching. <laughs> so um, I knew it was somebody that was important because nobody usually calls on Wednesday. So um, what was I saying? So just the way that God does things in his economy, is always different than the way the world would expect you to do things. God's wisdom is different. And so what, what's happening here is he's saying that wisdom is better than might, but the world doesn't understand that, in politics especially. What do we value in politics? 
Whoever, nothing, okay. Whoever's the, lo- whoever's the loudest, whoever's the most powerful, whoever pushes their way to the top usually gets recognized. The quiet, wise, reserved person may not be listened to even though that person may have great wisdom. But because they're not putting themselves out there, they may just be looked over. And that's what it says there in verse 17. The words of the wise and quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. What's he saying there? A quiet, humble person with great wisdom is far better than a politician or ruler who shouts at the top of his lungs to be heard but has no substance. Do we see that in politics? And not just in politics, but just in general. What do we see in general in life? Those who are the loudest, the brashest, the people that try to push themselves to the front, they sometimes get recognized, but is there any substance behind what they're doing? But maybe there's somebody that's reserved and that's quiet, but has a lot of wisdom. They're not listened to because they may be reserved or quiet. And so what Solomon's saying is, especially like in, in, in politics, in organizations, it's not always the loudest person that has the most wisdom. There could be some people that are, are quiet, but have a whole lot more wisdom. Just like this quiet little man that saved the city and nobody cared about him. They probably would have cared more about him if he was loud, brash, and put himself out there. Who knows? Okay. All right. So, verse 18. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Chapter 10, verse 1. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. One sinner, one fly. What's he saying here? Just a little bit of foolishness, a little bit of sin can ruin the influence of wisdom. Let me just ask you a question. Does it just take one bad apple to ruin the whole bunch? Can one bad person in an organization, in a church, in a group spread like a cancer and infect everything else. Just one. One person. Okay. Paul says this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, context here, the church is in major problems because there's a man who's having an incestuous relationship with his mother or mother-in-law. And the whole church knows about it and nobody's doing anything about it. They don't care. They're not disciplining him. You know, that's just the way we, that's the way we swing in, Cor- in Corinth. That's the way we do things. And Paul writes to them and says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven or yeast leavens the whole lump? Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. What's the thing about yeast? What does yeast do? What's the, what's the thing here? Just a little bit of yeast. What does yeast do? Okay. If, and how does it make the dough rise? It's, it spreads itself through the bread. Okay. How does cancer go through your body? It spreads. Okay. Think about a dead fly for a moment. After a while, if a dead fly lays there long enough, what's going to smell worse? The fly or the nice perfume? What's the, what's the one little fly going to do the perfume? 
What does he say there? Verse, verse 10, dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. Now think about it for a moment. A little tiny fly is inconsequential. But you guys know where there's one fly, there's what? More flies and more flies. And pretty soon you have a putrid mess of flies as opposed to really nice perfume. And it started out with one just little, one little fly. So think about it this way. One bad apple, few dead flies, one instigator, one bad politician, one corrupt cop, one dishonest employee, one gossiping church member, one little person who acts foolishly can ruin the entire group. Now let me give you a story about this. I'm not going to give names because some of these may be listening on podcast that are Facebook friends of mine that were former youth when I was a youth pastor 15 or so years ago. When I was a youth pastor in Colorado Springs, we had um, two high school boys that were terrible. I'll just say it that way. Um, they caused major, major problems. There were times when I'd come home Wednesday night after youth group and I would go to Don and say, I do not want to go back and do this ever again. They were so bad. They were just, I mean, they were, they were, they were, the kids were getting upset with them. They were destroying our youth group. They were causing friction. They were causing problems. Um, it came to the point where one of the kids wanted to go to camp. And this is the only time ever in my youth ministry where I went to his parents and said, this boy cannot go to camp. He's not allowed to go. And they were a little bit mad at me. And so they caused a lot of issues. And they were so pervasively causing problems that eventually I had to go to their parents and go to them and say, listen, your two boys are destroying a youth group of 60 people. And they're not gonna be, you're not going to be allowed to come anymore unless you get this worked out. Well, it got to a head and it got all crazy. And his, his mom came to me in the fellowship hall on a Wednesday night. And she said right to my face in front of a bunch of other people, you are an instrument of Satan, is what she told me to my face. What? I'm an instrument of Satan. She said, you're an instrument of Satan. And so that caused a lot of problems. Then it got so bad that I had an adult volunteer that was working with these boys as their Sunday school teacher. And he got, pulled me aside and said, you're being too, you're being too rough on these boys. You, you need to go a little soft on them. And I kind of explained the whole situation. And he got in my face and said, I was you know, being used by Satan. So I was accused twice in my youth ministry, of being an instrument of Satan, when in fact, these two boys were minions of Satan. These two boys were (laughs) instruments of Satan. No, but what I'm saying is, in a church, this was my first experience as a young youth pastor, how there's two bad apples and they fed off each other. And here's the beautiful thing about this. And, And here's what happened. Two weeks ago, out of the blue... One of them Facebook messaged me because his mom just died. And I saw that his mom died, and I, I reached out to his dad and said, Hey, I'm praying for you. you know, and he and his dad had the same name. So I get a Facebook message, and I think it's his dad. I said, So how, how are the boys doing? Well, this is so-and-so. Oh! And he's like, you know, something like this. He goes, I caused you a lot of trouble back when I was a youth. And I don't think I ever asked your forgiveness or ever apologized. I'm sorry for what I did. You made a great impact on my life. 
And then, like, for, you know, that kind of went back and forth. So 15 years later, he came around. Um, and so, but at the time, I wanted to, you know, literally, literally, I was at the point, we were coming back from California on a mission trip. We were in three 15-passenger vans. Don't ever do that. It was the last time I took three 15-passenger vans. We had like 60 people go across from Colorado Springs to California. Literally, I wanted to leave him at the, at the gas station. <laughs> you will stay here. Your mom will come get a... And it was at the point where, like, my rule was, if we have to send you home from camp, your parents are coming on their own dime to get you. And they need to fly out here and get you. And so, anyway, the point is, is that even in church life, and I'm sure Joe is a pastor, others have been in churches where one bad apple, one gossip, one instigator can cause problems for the whole group. Whether it's in a church, whether it's in a family, whether it's in a business, whether it's in politics, that's his point here. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. Listen to what happened in the early church with something like that. 2 Timothy 2, 16-18, Paul says, Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. What's gangrene? What, what happens with gangrene? It spreads and your appendages start to fall off, right? Now, why did Paul use the, an analogy of gangrene? He could have used any other thing. Yes, and it affects the what? The body. What's the church? A body with hands and legs. And So what he's saying is, is these two men, they're named. How would you like to have your names mentioned in infamy in the Bible as two men that caused problems? Hymenaeus and Philetus, their talk, their gossip, their irreverent babble spread like gangrene, and they were upsetting the faith of some. So we have a biblical example of this happening of two men in the Bible that are listed that cause problems. So I think on this macro level here, big political level, there are political situations where nations and major decisions are at stake, and just a little bit of foolishness can do great harm on a national level. So let's think about who wrote, or who wrote, who wrote Ecclesiastes? Solomon. What did Solomon pray for as David's successor? Now, Solomon is David's son, right? What did he pray for before he became king? Let's look at his prayer. 1 Kings 3, 7-9. through 9. This is Solomon's prayer. And now, O Lord my God, you've made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you've chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this, your great people. Would not every politician pray that? Christian politician. What's he saying? I'm clueless. I don't know how to lead these people. Grant me understanding to govern the people that I may discern good from evil. That's a good prayer, right? And there was peace and there was prosperity under Solomon's rule because he led with wisdom. 
Solomon's son. Do you remember who Solomon's son was? Rehoboam. What did Solomon's son Rehoboam do that was foolish? Yeah. First Kings 12, 9 through 11. He said to them, What do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father put on us? Okay, so he's, he's starting to impress the people of Israel. And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. You think living under Solomon was bad? I'm going to oppress you even worse. And what happened as a result of that? Does anybody know what happened? What? Kingdom split. They lost 10 of the 12 tribes. That was where the the nation, you, you ended up with the northern and the southern kingdom of Israel. There was civil war as a result of that. So one stupid decision brought what? The splitting up of the nation of Israel. Okay? So that's macro level. Now let's look at micro level down here, like our daily decisions here. Look at verse 2. A wise, man heart, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. That does not mean anything about politics, right or left, red state, blue state. That's not what he's talking about here. To the right in the Bible means holiness, integrity, righteousness. The left, wickedness, perversity, corruption. Let's turn in our Bibles to Proverbs for a moment, just one book over. Proverbs chapter 4, where it talks about the heart. Because what does it say here? A wise, man, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. So your actions are determined by the condition of your heart. Okay? Proverbs chapter 4. 14 through 15 says this. Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. Now go down to verse 23. Keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. Put away your crooked speech and put away devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. What does verse 23 say? It's a good verse to memorize. Keep your heart with all vigilance. What's he he really meaning there? Guard your heart. Make sure you have a pure heart. If you're a wise person, your heart's going to lead you to do righteousness. If you're a wicked, foolish person, your heart's going to lead you to do corruption. Do you guys, if somebody's a foolish person, do they usually have to advertise it? Do you have that one person you know that's like, oh, here he comes, or here she comes? That's what verse 3 is all about, okay? In verse 3, we see that a fool is evident to all around. Look at verse 3. Even when a fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he's a fool. 
Everybody knows this dude's a fool. You can see him coming a mile away. Proverbs 12, 23. A prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of the fool proclaims folly. Here I am. So verse 4. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. What's he saying here? Verse 4 deals with how to respond to the anger of a superior. Now, in this case, it's a king or a ruler, but it could be anybody, a boss, anybody in authority. How are you to respond when somebody in authority over you gets angry with you? Should you just walk out and ignore it? Should you stomp off mad? What's he saying there? Do not leave your place for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. What's he saying there? Don't leave your place. Stay calm and address the issue with boldness yet gentleness. That takes some boldness, right? But sometimes it's appropriate to stand your ground and to answer back calmly yet boldly with gentleness. Because Proverbs 51 says what? A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 25:15, with patience a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue will break a bone. Have you ever been in a situation where somebody in a position of authority over you got mad at you? What's your temptation? What? (laughs) To leave your place and tell them? Okay. There's a lot of different ways we can respond, can't we? We can get in their face and yell back at them. Maybe get fired. We can stomp off mad. We can go back and gossip at them. Or we can stand our ground and say, thanks for that information. I'll take it under advisement. I appreciate the word. And that might blow them away because what are they expecting? They're expecting you to fly off the handle. That takes a lot of Holy Spirit-inspired grace in those moments. Um, But all throughout the Bible, it talks about a soft answer turning aside wrath, being gracious. Um, It doesn't mean you're a doormat and you can be walked all over. It just means that stand your ground and be be calm um, because it may alleviate the situation to where it doesn't escalate. Now, in verses 5 and 6... Solomon sees the foolishness of political decisions that often don't make sense, but happen all the time. Imagine a wicked, corrupt, or incompetent person put in positions of greater leadership. You ever see that? Who normally gets promoted? Yeah, the one that doesn't know how to do it, the least qualified. That's basically what he sees here. What does he say there in verse 5? There's an evil that I've seen under the sun It was an error proceeding from the ruler. Okay, so the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. What should be happening? This is not an argument whether slavery is right or wrong. That's not the point here. This is the, obviously it's wrong. But back in that culture, what's he saying? Princes ride on horses. Slaves walk. They're turned upside down. And it's set in many high places because of the ruler. 
What does it say there? Error proceeds from the ruler. The leaders made a bad choice. And it got things topsy-turvy in the government, in the positions. And so sometimes leaders will make bad decisions and promote bad people and there will just be things that are topsy-turvy in an organization or in a nation that doesn't quite make sense because it takes what? Just one bad apple. What's Solomon's point up to this point? It just takes one little fly, one little bad apple, one little, one little insignificant decision that can cause major havoc in organizations all the way up to nations. Okay, so this first section here is all about politics, nations, how you deal with kings and rulers. Okay, now he's going to move into these proverbs here. Um, Use wisdom in daily activities and decisions. Okay, so let's read verses 8 through 11. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If a serpent bites before it's charmed, there's no advantage to the charmer. Okay, now what in the world is he talking about here? First of all, Solomon gives four illustrations or examples of what may happen in daily life if you don't use wisdom. In their daily life. Okay? He gives examples from their culture. What's example one? He who digs a pit will fall into it. You may dig a pit to trap an animal and camouflage it with leaves and then forget where you dug it and fall in. Never happen to anybody? Or it's nighttime and you for- I'll tell you the story. I got a story that just came to my mind. When I was in fifth grade, we went out to a little camp out at a person's house in our church who lived on a farm. And um, there was out on his property, it wasn't baling wire, but it was like concrete, like rebar. You know, like, that re- like wrapped up rebar. It was rusty rebar, like stuff you'd lay down for concrete. And it was real spiky. And I had tripped over it. And I thought to myself, that's dangerous. And I told all the other boys, watch out for this wire. I was from Texas. Watch out for this wire. I didn't know what else to call it. And so that night, it was dark, and we were playing hide-and-go-seek. And guess what? I ran, and I forgot where that thing was, and I tripped, and I fell, and a piece of that rebar went right into my knee all the way down. And so, like, probably about six inches down into my leg. And so I pulled it out, and I'm yelling and screaming as loud as I could. And anyway, I had to get stitches and all that stuff, tetanus shot. But it was one of those things where I knew it was there. I remembered it was there. I warned the other boys that it was there. But yet in the running around at night playing hide-and-go-seek, I forgot it was there, and I tripped, and I got the scar to this day. And so that's kind of what he's saying here. So here's the example. (laughs) Don't forget where you put your keys. I mean, it's pretty practical sense here. Don't forget. Don't do something stupid, okay? Or something dumb, okay? Now, the second one's about a, a snake. What does he say? A serpent will bite him when he tries to break through a wall. Okay, when farmers back then wanted to move a wall, like on a property, like for, like for a wall or for a gate or for a, 
um, a fence. They had to be very careful that poisonous snake was not hiding in the nest between the rocks in those cracks. And so in a hurry to move the rocks and get things done, they could have gotten bitten by a snake. So the point he's saying here is, don't be in such a hurry that you don't pay attention to crucial details. Did that ever happen to anybody before? You're in such a hurry, you ran out of the house, you forgot something, and you're like, oh, wow. One time when I was growing up, I had all these stories about when I was growing up, um, my dad was a pastor, and um, we got home for, from church, and I was probably in fifth grade, probably around the same time, and um, obviously we drove two separate cars, and so we got in ready to eat dinner, and my dad's like, where's Scott's my younger brother's like, where's Scott? I don't know, I thought you came with you. My mom's like, I thought he came with you. No, I thought he came with you. Well, we left Scott back at church. <laughs> so my dad drives all the way back. He's in the sanctuary in the dark, still asleep on one of the pews. Wakes him up. He has no idea that this was going on. And so um, just a minor detail. Make sure you bring your kid home from church and not leave him there. Don't get in such a hurry that you do something stupid. Okay. Um, number Verse 9, he who quarries stones is hurt by them. Um, example 3 um, you know, people would dig out huge stones in a quarry to build houses. And if you're on a hillside or not careful, you could be hurt by a rolling stone, Mick Jagger, or dropping one on your toe. <laughs> and so just be careful. Um, this one would be, you know, be careful and observant of your surroundings. Some people are just, Don and I use the word OTL. Does anybody know what the word OTL is? Oblivious to life. There are some people that are just oblivious to life and the surroundings around them. Don't be one of those people, um, especially at Walmart when you're like behind them and they're in a cart and they turn around real quick and they don't know you're there and they like smash into you. I'm always one of those people that's really fast moving. And so I have to always make sure that I don't run into people that are oblivious to life because <laughs> they have no idea where they are and they may turn around and I, I you know, I just got to be careful because uh, right, number, number four, example number four. If you split a log with an axe, be careful to wear eye protection so that a splinter of wood doesn't get in your eye and that you don't get hurt. Um, he who splits a log is endangered by them. Just basic, I mean, things that you wouldn't think that would have to be in the Bible that are just basic wisdom type things. Um, just use common sense, use wisdom. I mean, he says the same thing in verses 10 through 11. Verse 10, sharpen the iron. <laughs> Work smart, not hard. If the iron is blunt, one is not sharp in the edge. He must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the servant, serpent bites before it's charmed, there's no advantage to the charmer. Um, back then, you had to charm the snake so it won't bite you. I think what he's saying here, in other words, don't be so hurried or rushed in doing something that takes time or it will come back to bite you. Use God-given wisdom. He's given you Wisdom to use it in daily life. Part three, wisdom in your speech and conversation. Let's read verses 12 through 20. And notice how many times the word words is used. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. 
A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature will tell the matter. This is all about your words. What does he say there in verse 12? The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. Proverbs 18, 7. A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to his soul. Many people have gotten in trouble for what they've said. Have you ever wanted to take back something you said one time? Have you ever said something and you thought, how in the world can that come out of my mouth? Where did that come from? All the time. Where did that come from? Have you said something to somebody that was so hurtful that that person never forgave you? Even to this day, they still hold a grudge against you because of something you said? The, the, the words have power um, in how they affect other people. And it's bad enough to speak foolishly once. <laughs> what does he say there in verse 14? A fool multiplies words. It's bad enough to speak it once, but you keep going on and on. And what is a fool going to say? A fool multiplies words, verse 14, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him. What's he saying here? A fool begins to speculate about the future and makes predictions of what's going to happen as if he or she knows absolutely what lies ahead. Have you ever met somebody like that? They're all talk. They, they, they think they, they know everything. They know everything about everything. They talk about everything. They never shut up about everything. And they're always talking about the future and how things are going to be. Now, do we know anything about the future? What has he already taught us in Ecclesiastes? Let's just go back and see what he's already taught us. Uh, 3.22. So I saw there's nothing better that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Who can't? We don't know what's going to come afterwards. Chapter 6, verse 12. For who knows what is good for man while he lives in the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Implication, nobody can really do that. 714. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Chapter 8, verse 7. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him what it will be? What Solomon already told us? Do we absolutely know the future? No. But a fool will keep going on and on 
bloviating, that's a good word, bloviating about the future as if he or she knows exactly what's going to happen. They drone on and on, but yet they can't find their way out of a paper bag. Look at verse 15. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Now, in verses 16 through 20, Solomon's going to reintroduce this issue of politics. And so he's going to go on the macro level again. Woe to a land or a nation or a country where the leader acts like a child. What does he say there? Woe to you, a land, when your king is a child. Do we have... Yeah, sometimes we have childish leaders. That's a woe. If, if leaders of a nation act like children, woe. That's what he's saying. That's not a good thing. Blessed is the land or happy is the land when your leaders act with integrity and justice and don't get drunk either on power or literally on drink. Your, 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 your king is the son of nobility. Your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Okay, verse 18, we see indolence, sloth. The sl- through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the, indolence, the house leaks. Back then, they had houses that were flat, flat roofs made of limestone. And limestone would often crack and seep. And because they're flat roofs and there's no runoff, the water in that climate would just kind of seep in. And after a while, you would have what? Your house would begin to sink in. And if you were lazy and didn't go up and plaster the roof, you would have a dilapidated, sinking house that would leak. Now, why does he bring the whole issue of a house in with nations and governments? I mean, it could be literally, if your roof's leaking, go fix it. I mean, that's, that's the common sense. Or it could be a metaphor of saying a nation whose, quote, house is in disrepair due to poor leadership. The incompetent king is off getting drunk and partying while the country lies in ruins. It says they're going off in drunkenness. Um, bread is made for laughter, wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Now, have not we seen those being good things? What has he told us all along? Enjoy food, enjoy drink, enjoy your work. He's told us that. And in verse 19, it makes it sound like he's, he's praising that again. But what's he saying there? Those aren't good things when you're the king going off getting drunk and enjoying the privileges of life while your nation lies in ruins. You're out partying... You're not. You're living a frivolous lifestyle. You're out. You're. You're not feasting at the proper time. You're out getting drunk. You're being slothful. You're being lazy. You're out partying, and your nation. You're acting like a child. You're acting like a child, and the nation is going to pot. Now, what happens when you have leaders like this? Whether it's a president, whether it's a boss. Whether it's any type of leader, when when a leader abuses their position and they live frivolously and they act like a child and they do stupid things, what's your temptation? To curse them, (laughs) to grumble against them, to hate them. What does he say there? Verse 20, even in your thoughts, do not curse the king. 
Don't even, don't even curse him in your thoughts. Even in your bedroom when you're by yourself or maybe when you're with your spouse or with a friend, don't say anything negative because what's going to happen? A little bird may take those words and it may get back to the king. What does he say there? For a bird of the air will carry your voice or some winged creature will tell the matter. Okay, so verse 20. Don't curse the king even in your thoughts. Don't even do it in a private conversation because there just may be a little bird who hears you complain and it gets back to the king. Okay. I want you to think about some animals here that we've talked about. Three animals we've seen. One little fly, one little snake, and one little bird. These animals are fairly small, but they have amazing potential to cause great harm. A little fly is small, but can a fly cause great harm? A snake hiding in the nest you can't see it's small. Can it cause great harm? Can a little bird that goes and tells your secrets to other people, can it cause great harm? So little dead flies can spoil fragrant perfume. Little snakes hiding in between rocks can kill a 200-pound man. A little bird can fly off and tell your secret to the king and get you in trouble. So what's the point? Even a little bit of foolishness can influence, can ruin the influence and strength of wisdom. The New Testament talks about wisdom. Ephesians 5, 15-17. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. That's a New Testament command. What's it telling us to do? Walk in wisdom. Walk carefully. Make the most of your time. Spend time determining what God's will is. Make good decisions. Don't be one of those bad apples. Don't be one of those little flies that causes problems. Be one that uses your God-given wisdom to make wise choices. Paul also says this in Colossians. Colossians chapter 4, 5-6. through 6, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech, have not we seen that? Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So speech, wisdom, making the best use of time, being wise. And what does Jesus tell us? Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Be wise. Okay, any questions on that section before we move on? That was a difficult section. It was the hardest section of Ecclesiastes. It was kind of easy. (laughs) Now we get into chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. Yes, go ahead, Bob. Uh, sometimes I, I kind of look at it, too, from what you said, that Solomon, when he started out, he was very close to God, mm-hmm. and then God blessed him and gave him everything. And I kind of wonder if he really had God as in his heart toward the end of his life when he wrote some of this stuff here. Because 
Uh, I think sometimes this is just like human wisdom versus godly wisdom, and that he really is not, he doesn't talk about seeking God as much as he did when he was younger, and, and it's just like, you know, uh, you know, when we talk about the Lord, which he didn't have, but still we live under the new covenant, you know, um, uh, you know, man does not live by bread alone, and yet he just talks about, you know, uh, food, drink, and, and, mm -hmm. and enjoying life, but that seems like that's the way of the human race, you know, mm -hmm. it's not really a godly right. thing. Any well, he gives a different caveat by saying we enjoy the, those are good to enjoy if we realize the source, that they're gifts from God to us and that we glorify God through them and that we trust God because we don't know the future. That would be different than saying, hey, go out and drink and party and have fun because you're the master of your own life. Yeah. His wisdom is enjoy these as, don't abuse these, enjoy these as God-given gifts to you. Realize He's the source. He's given these to you. You don't know what the future holds. It's in His hands. You're trusting in His sovereignty. That's the godly wisdom versus the worldly wisdom. Does that, does that make sense? That helps, yeah. yeah. Because these kings were going out and doing worldly wisdom. They were going out and partying and getting drunk and living frivolous and eat, drink, and be merry and party because we're in charge and we can do whatever we want and who cares what happens to our nation because we're just, you know, we've got the goods to party and, you know, who cares? Well, Salt, go ahead. Well, and also you'll see when we get to chapter 12 where Solomon comes back yeah. to, you know. Yeah. yeah, Solomon brings it all back because you have to remember that Solomon's perspective here is he's looking at life under the sun. So some of the things that he's seeing He's not necessarily agreeing with or saying this is the way it should be. He's making an observation of how life is in a fallen world, saying this is the way it is because of sin. Um, this is what I'm seeing. And sometimes he says, I don't like what I see. And sometimes he'll even say that this is an evil I've seen under the sun. This is the way it shouldn't be. He's giving us these examples of what he's seeing. But, but Kay's right. At the very end, he's going to bring it all back around into what the most important thing is. But you're right. Historically, Solomon did... Solomon did three things that a king of Israel was not supposed to do. He was not supposed to marry foreign wives. He did many. He was not supposed to accumulate wealth, beyond, like personal wealth. He accumulated a lot of gold. And he wasn't supposed to accumulate a lot of horses. And he broke all three of those. And so you could see towards the end of Solomon's life how he walked away from that close relationship with the Lord. And we're not really sure when he wrote this. If he wrote this in the middle of his life or if he wrote it towards the end of his life or if, yeah, but yeah, good, good observations. Thank you. Yep. All right. Chapter 11 verses one through six. We'll see how, this is how far we're going tonight. This is as far as I've prepared. So we've got a little bit of time. Cast your bread upon the waters for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. The clouds are full of rain. They empty themselves on the earth. The tree falls to the south or to the north. In the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. What in the world is this all about? Total shifting of gears. Here's his point. Since we do not know the future, 
Use every opportunity to take risks, but with wisdom. Now, this is different. Some of us are very, very timid. Some of us are very, very bold. This is a show of hands. How many of you would consider yourself risky in your personality? You like to take risks. How many of you are more steady, methodical? I want to think it through. Okay, most of us are probably like that. Okay. He's going to challenge us here to actually take a risk. Take a godly, wise risk. Okay, so part one. Be bold and generous, but wise. You've probably heard the expression, cast your bread upon the waters. Now, what in the world does that mean? What does it mean to cast your bread upon the waters? What's the first thing that thinks, like, okay, I go to Walmart, I get some oral wheat, I throw that thing on the water, it's just going to sink, get all mushy. What point does that make? Well, back then... Their bread was not like our bread. It's kind of like bread today. Like when we go to India, Middle Eastern bread. It's more like a pita bread. Flat, more dense. So if you threw that like frisbee-like piece of bread on the water, it would probably coast for a while. And so if you throw it on a stream, you can see it float until it goes out of sight. And what's the point? He says that bread's going to come back to you. Now, what in the world does that mean? Most scholars believe, when you look in the commentaries, it means to do something risky, take a bold risk in some type of activity, do something risky where a return might seem impossible. Now, there have been two major interpretations in church history as to what historically it meant to cast bread on the water. Cast your bread on the water. Number one, some argue that sending out your bread upon the water meant sending your goods overseas through the shipping industry. Make an investment, send your goods off to be sold out and imported, exported, and send them away across the ocean, and you may make a profit. That's one interpretation. The other interpretation is give alms to the poor in generosity when disaster strikes. What does verse 2 say? Give your portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what disaster may happen on the earth. Give something, give a portion, give, give a large portion, because you don't know when disaster may strike. We would probably say it this way today. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Diversify. Be bold. So if we take the interpretation of sea trade, if you send your goods overseas with a risk to never see an investment, you still take the risk. It's a bold move, but it may pay off with dividends. You may, you may send something off and it may come back you know, multiple. You don't know. You're taking a risk. If we take the interpretation of, of generosity and giving alms, you, you get, you'd have the risk that you are going to give money to somebody and they may never pay you back. That money may go down the drain. You give a homeless person $10, you don't know how they're going to spend it. Are they going to go spend it on drugs or are they going to go spend it on food? 
But it says here, give a portion for you know not when disaster may happen on the earth. Now that doesn't seem, what would you think it would say there? Store up your goods, stockpile your goods, have a basement downstairs with prepared food. Be a prepper because you don't know when disaster is going to happen. But what does he say there? Give. What's the, what's the, t- the, the tendency that we have when disaster would strike? Our gut instinct is to hoard. This is my stuff. This is mine. I'm not going to share with it. But he says, share your stuff with somebody. Especially when a disaster strikes. Right now, there's wildfires going on in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. I heard this morning there's tornadoes in Atlanta. Three years ago, we had the big flood here. Nobody's immune to a disaster. What as Christians should we be doing when disaster strikes? Do you guys know that our Southern Baptist disaster relief is number two in the nation called upon behind the Red Cross when there are things going on? They don't often get publicity, but the Red Cross, FEMA, the President's Office will call Southern Baptist disaster relief right when they call Red Cross. And we have people deployed all across the country to go out and do disaster relief that are trained to do that. They have little yellow shirts and little yellow jackets on, but you may see them on TV. So when Hurricane Katrina hit, um, all these types of things, we have a disaster relief unit. Even in our state, we have a disaster relief. We have a mobile trailer that has ability to cook food, to do shower units, chainsaws, all this type of stuff. And so as Christians, we should be willing to help when disaster strikes, not to hoard. Take a risk. What happens if you help somebody during a disaster and they never pay you back or they never say thank you? Does it matter? Take a risk. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure as a firefighter, you see a lot of, you get to go see, you get to witness that a lot. Yeah, actions speak louder than words. Yeah, Yeah. the real issue is this. Are we willing to take bold risks and generosity knowing that we may never see a return or get paid back simply because it's the right thing to do? Um, what does Jesus say about possessions and generosity? Luke twelve fifteen, he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. What does the Bible say about generosity, especially to the poor, to those that are affected by disaster, to those that need help? Uh, Deuteronomy 15.10, You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and all that you undertake. Give to the Lord freely. Don't give to the Lord begrudgingly. That's talking more about you know, giving tithes and offerings. But Proverbs 19.17 Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Proverbs 22.9, Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. Luke 6.38, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap, for with the measure you use it will be measured back 
to you. And we could go on and on about all the different passages that talk about generosity. All right. Part three, or part two, the consistencies of the laws of nature. Verse three, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. If a tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it, did it really fall? What's that old joy? If a tree falls to the north or the south, the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. What's he saying here? There are some consistencies, some regularities that we see in nature that keep us sane. For example, when you look up at a rain cloud and it looks like it's going to rain, what does that tell you? I better get an umbrella. I better go pull my car in the garage. I better whatever. If a tree falls in a forest and falls down, is it going to get back up? Why? Gravity. Okay. So gravity, seasons, there's some observable things in nature that just help us to understand life. And God has put that there. But what's the temptation, especially for a farmer? What's a farmer? You guys are all, not all of you are farmers, but a lot of you are farmers. What are you waiting for as a farmer sometimes? A government check. A government check, okay. Okay. So think about farmers for a moment. Do you wait for the ideal time for sowing and reaping? So for example, as a farmer, do you want there to be hailstorms in June? No. Do you want there to be early frost in October or whatever? You want there to always be ideal conditions for reaping and sowing. But here's the problem. Is there ever an opportune time? Is there ever ideal conditions? So here's part three. Waiting for ideal conditions can lead to idleness. Okay? There are those who are overly cautious, who are sitting around waiting for ideal conditions before they do anything. They end up doing nothing at all. What does he say there in verse four? He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. Sometimes... And not just in farming. Let's just talk about anything. In any, in any endeavor where you really feel like you want to take a risk, you want to be bold, you want to stretch out in faith, what's the temptation? Sometimes you can be so paralyzed waiting for the right time that you never take a chance. Now, I'm not saying that, I'm, not, I'm saying this requires wisdom because in all case, it may be good not to take a chance then. But maybe God is calling you to something that sounds really, really weird or it sounds really far-fetched, or it sounds like it's impossible, and you're wondering whether it really should happen, and you've talked to people, and you've prayed about it, and you feel a peace about it, what should you do then? If it's not illegal, immoral, and ethical, what should you do? Go for it. Now, can you control the results? But if you never do it, will you get any results? Okay, so here's the point. In other words... If you don't try at all, you may never succeed at anything. So there's this temptation of waiting for just the right time. And he's saying, don't do that. And then he reminds us of something in part five, part four, verse five. God's sovereignty over everything. He says, you do not know the way the spirit comes into the bones in the womb of a woman with child. So you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Now, obviously, in ancient times, they didn't have sonograms. They didn't have ultrasounds. They didn't know how babies 
were born. They just knew. What did they know? What was the one thing they know? God makes everything. It's the same thing with us. We may not exactly know how life begins or when life begins, when the embryo is a living soul. That, that, we know it's life, and we know God has authored it. We know that God is the one that's done that. It's the same thing with here. We, we may not know all the intricacies of how things work, but one thing we do know is that God's the creator. And what does the psalm say? Psalm 139. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made, Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made, being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. What I think he's saying is there are obviously, and we've looked at this over and over again, there are mysteries in life, and there's some things that we don't know. But what's the one thing you do know? God is in control. God makes everything. God is sovereign. When you send your cargo out on a ship, when you send your bread out on the waters, who's in control of the waters? God. When it rains or when it's dry, who's in control? When a tree falls in the forest, who's in control? When the wind blows, who's in control? When a farmer plants a harvest and gets a harvest, who's in control? When God gives breath to a newborn baby, who's in control? This provides us with stability in an uncertain, sinful world. We can trust that no matter what happens, even when we take these risks, even when we step out in boldness, we're taking a risk because we, I mean, anything you do is by faith because you don't know what the future holds. One thing you do know, whether you succeed or fail, whether it works out or doesn't, God is in control. God is sovereign. Now, this is not a cause for laziness or fatalism. Well, I can just sit back and do nothing because God's in control. We should never do evangelism because after all, if God's going to save them, God's going to save them. We should never pray because after all, God's going to answer prayer. We should never give tithes and offerings because after all, God's going to owns the cattle on a thousand hills. We should never use our spiritual gifts because after all, God's going to get the work done. We should never take bold risks because after all, God's in control. Should we ever have that attitude? Is God in control? Is that an excuse for laziness? Is that an excuse for a lack of activity? Okay. The Bible will not allow that. Okay. Yes, God is in control, but we're called to cast our bread upon the water. We're called to, and he says there, what does he say? The very last part here, what does he tell us? Plant. Use every opportunity to work. In the morning, sow your seed. In the evening, withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. You don't know. You don't know what you're going to do is going to succeed. You don't know what you're going to do is fail. Take a risk. You don't know. But do something. We don't know the future. We don't know if disaster will strike. We can look and observe the conditions. We can make a prediction. We can seek godly counsel. But in the end, it should be in the end, we need to act. We should at time take bold risks. It may fail miserably, or God may bless the socks off you. But if you don't know, how will you ever, if 
you don't do anything, how will you ever know? What's repeated four times here? You do not know. Verse 2, give a portion to seven or eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on the earth. Verse 5, you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones. You do not know the work of God who makes everything. You do not know whether it will prosper. The point is, we don't know. But we can trust that God may bless bold risk-taking. So sometimes as Christians, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes as Christians, we can play it safe and actually miss out on God-given opportunities to do something worthwhile or risky. Does that scare any of you? Do you find it odd that God would give you permission in the Bible to do something bold and risky? My question is, what do you have to lose? Well, it depends on how you evaluate loss and and what do you value. If God is truly leading you to do something bold and risky, can you control the outcome? God is sovereign but should you be paralyzed and not do it? Um, I think there's a lot of times in the life of a church and life of a family and life of an individual where I think it's, at, times, at times we could possibly be disobedient and not move out in boldness when God was calling. Let me think about it. I know of a perfect example. Back in Numbers 13 and 14, what did the nation of Israel do? They sent 12 spies in to the land of Canaan. They scouted out the land, and what did they say? There's giants in the land. There's, we look like grasshoppers to them. They got these huge clusters of grape. They came back and 10 of them said, we can't do it. And two said, we can. Joshua and Caleb said, what? God's with us. We can do this. And the people said, we can't do this. So Joshua and Caleb wanted to, re- wanted to go out in boldness and say, God's on our side. Let's do this. 10 of them said, we can't do it. And what happened? The, the majority rules, right? And so they ended up not going in, wandering for 40 years, and that generation dying except for Joshua and Caleb. Now, did God's plan get accomplished? Yes. What, did that group of people get to be in on God's plan? No. no, God was going to get his plan accomplished, but this group of people said, I'm not going to do it. So God says, okay, I'm going to bypass you for 40 years and you deal with the consequences and I'll use another generation, but I'm still going to get it done. You're just not going to get in the blessing of what I'm doing. And so sometimes, even when the minority report is calling us to do something, there could be the majority be like, I don't know about that. That's why it requires wisdom. You don't want to be foolish. You don't want to be presumptuous. There's a fine line between stupidity, presumption, and boldness. I don't know where that line is. That's why it requires wisdom. It requires counsel. It requires Seeking the seeking godly help, um, but if we think about if, if if think about just in life, if if nobody ever took risks, would we be where we are today? Just in God's common grace, like just in medicine and advancements and science, if, if inventors and entrepreneurs, if people didn't take bold risks, where would we be today? What was it? How many times did Edison 
fail before he like got the light bulb? Like, what was it? 1,000? I'm hearing 4,000. 4,000. It's in the thousands. Knowing me, I would have stopped at like three. <laughs> yeah. So, in other words, since we do not know the future, use every opportunity to take risks, but with wisdom. Cast your bread on the water. We are done, unless there's other questions, comments you guys have. I think we can get done next week. So can you explain who the poor are? Can I explain who the poor are? Is it the guy that uh, chooses to not work and smoke marijuana, sitting down in the corner of Walmart with a sign? <laughs> or is it the kid in Africa that that's a very difficult question there is legitimate reasons for people being poor and there are illegitimate reasons for people staying in poverty and the question you've got to ask is when I give to a person that I perceive as poor Am I truly blessing and helping them or am I enabling them to continue in their sinful behavior? The hard part is that we don't know all this. We don't know the whole story. We can't see into their heart. And sometimes, even when you do the best you can, they can still take advantage of you. So you have two options. You can have an attitude, I'm never going to help anybody because I'm always going to get burned. Or I'm just going to help everybody and live with the results. Or you can walk that fine line and say, I really need to have wisdom and discernment and really pray to see if this is really what God would have me to do. And I think that's probably where most of us... Yeah, yeah, there's, yeah, you, yeah, there. Here's the thing, because we we struggle with this. When when, we, when the deacons started the benevolence ministry, we we had some long discussions about how, to what extent do we help people. And so, if you look at our benevolence policy, we have levels of help. We have those in our church family, who are members. They get the highest priority as far as attention and money. Second level are maybe not a members, but regular attenders, people that are connected to our church. And then the third level would be like what we call what we call transients or people that just come in out of the blue. Okay? And then even based upon household, like a single mother with six kids is going to get more help than maybe. So we've got some standards there, and you only have so much money as a church to give out in your benevolence. But there have been times where in the early days there was a huge discrepancy between the deacons. There were some deacons that were very, very, we're not going to help anybody. We're suspicious. We're not going to, you know, we're just not going to. And we had others who were like, you know what, we need to freely give because God's freely given to us. And there was actually some conflict among our deacons on how to do that. And eventually we moved into the fact that, you know what, we, it's sometimes you're going to get burned. And you just got to live with that. And there's been times where we've given money. And like you said, you can't, Here's what I would say, Taylor. Here's a, there's a difference between a stranger coming to you for help 
or you seeing a stranger and you giving them something as a gift and generosity and, and you can't control what they do from there versus a person in your church or a person you know that is chronically abusing the system or chronically in this situation where you know you'd be empowering them by doing it. I think there's a difference there in how you handle that. Right. And so um, sometimes that's where counseling comes in because we've had to even do that in benevolence where you have to bring a family in and, and, and sit down with them and say, okay, we need to have a plan here of how we're going to do this because we don't want to keep enabling you. Um, but like a guy you see on the side of the road that needs help and has the Walmart thing, been do you know... Yeah. Yeah. One time. Part of the thing too, yeah. is, is if we look look back in um, some of the law, they they didn't harvest the edges of their fields. Mm-hmm. If you think back to um, like Ruth, Ruth, mm-hmm. she had to go out and work, and then Boaz helped her. And you know, that's kind of where I've come down mm-hmm. most recently is. Because, you know, a lot, I don't mind buying those guys some food and, and feeding them, but when it comes down to they're not going to ever work, they're just there, that's their job is to right. panhandle or, you know, right. they're, they're, they're chronic right. there. Um, and, and that, and when that, like in Deuteronomy, I think it's in Deuteronomy, but anyway, they left the corners and yeah. the edges of their field ungleaned. Right. And that was for the poor to right. go out and, and so they could find food. Yeah. And so there, there is uh, a built. standard there that they're going to actually work to help themselves. Yeah. yeah. And not, and not continue yeah, it was, in that. Yeah, it was built-in welfare for the poor, but it was expectation that you, you weren't going to just get a handout. You had to go glean. Yeah. You had to go take the glean stuff. Here's what's very helpful in our city. We have cooperating ministries, which is a clearinghouse. They have a database that they keep of chronic offenders, I guess you'd say. So when we get benevolence and we're not sure, we will call cooperating ministries and say, what's your history on this person? They can say, well, this person's come six. They'll say, this person's come six times. They're chronic. I would advise you. You can do what you want as a free church, but I would advise you to be very careful in how you proceed with this person. Other times, this person's not on our database, you know. And so there's times where we've had to make some hard choices. And I would say for the most part, our deacons, especially, you know, when you think about Larry Hutt, who's one of our deacons, and, and Brent Carey and those guys, they really, I think they they meet with the people and they, um, you know, there's times where I've gone and got guys gas, um, we see it a lot in the summer because of where we're located. People coming in on 14 behind Walmart. Uh, there was a time when I was a youth pastor. I went into I went into um, McDonald's and there was a homeless guy asking for money. And I said, "Well, I'm not going to give you money, but you want to come in and eat a Big Mac with me." And so I bought him lunch and ate with him. And then he said, "Thank you." Um, what we used to do in Colorado Springs a lot, we would make homeless kits, and they were just big Ziploc bags, and they would have razors, canned food, socks, band-aids, shampoo, um, and we'd build these these kits. And then we'd have a Bible, a New Testament Bible in there. And we would just always have those ready in our car so that if we saw somebody with a sign or we saw somebody, we could hand them that. There was something tangible that was 
useful. It wasn't money, but it was a lot. Of, and so in youth group, there was times like maybe once every three months, we'd go down to Acacia Park or we'd go down to the homeless areas in Colorado Springs and we'd just hand those out to people and we'd ask for opportunities to share the gospel with them. Um, yeah. 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 I think there's, a, there's, there's the, the church's stance as a body and then there's the individual. You see the person, how do you respond? And I think it just requires wisdom. And I would say if you, if you, if you never ex- be, expect to be, I hate to use the word burned, expect at times to be, to be the person takes, takes advantage of you. But if you, if, you, if you have the attitude, that, if you always have the attitude they're going to take advantage of me, then you may never give. And you just have to live with that. Some people have a problem living with that. That's what the struggle we had. We had these conversations back in the day. Well, what if they take advantage of us? What if they, what if they you know, never pay us back? Or what if they don't do this or that? Well, that's why it's called benevolence. It's not a loan. It's a gift. And so they may never pay us back. That's a good question. It's a hard, hard question. I, I think it's, yeah. There's a difference between how a church handles it, how the government handles it, and how you as an individual handle it. And I won't get into that. <laughs> Especially how the government handles it, because that's a different, that's a wholly different entity. Um, we can have strong opinions about that. Any other thoughts? It's probably time to go. All right. Well, let's pray. Father, I do pray that we would have wisdom to know how to... Um, in all these areas, Lord, how to how to handle um, anger when somebody is over us, maybe mad at us, Lord, how to handle being involved in gossip if there's some bad apples that are around us, Lord, how to handle how we um, give to the poor, wisdom in maybe making some bold decisions, um, Lord, I'm, I'm I'm sure that there's many in this room who are faced with a decision in the near future that they need wisdom in. And Lord, you tell us in James to ask and you give liberally, you give generously. So would you please grant wisdom uh, to us to be able to live for you, to glorify you, uh, to walk in joy of our salvation. And Lord, to to realize that wisdom is mightier than the sword and that, um, Lord, we'd just be people that that use our God-given wisdom to glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.